Hello and welcome. This is Pastor Josh with Hilltop Community Church, and I would like to thank you for listening with us as we study God's Word together. The title of today's message is Fulfilling Promises. Let's join Pastor Kurt as he teaches from Ezekiel chapter 39. Good morning. If you guys, uh, you're you're way louder than me, but uh, if you want to find your way back to a seat, that'd be great. Um, Hey, I just wanted to say, you know, welcome to God's house. He's really glad you're here. He is. Um, and so it's, it's good to be with you. And uh, as, as we worship just now, you know, the, Mike and I were in Florida this last week at a, at a conference that kind of focused in on worship through music. And, and I walked away with a really strong um, just feeling that when we worship, it, it is our, in song, but with all of our lives, we are enjoying God and glorifying him. We are enjoying him and glorifying him. And so I I hope that that is what music does for you. I hope that your life reveals that, that you are enjoying God and glorifying him. Um, We're going to be in Ezekiel chapter 39 today, and we're looking at God fulfilling his promises. But before we do that, uh, I want to take 30 seconds. um, And and, and what I'm going to do is I'm going to ask you a question. And what I want you to do is I want you to write down or maybe type it in your phone or just log it away in your head. The first three things maybe that come to your mind when I ask you this question. And so the question is, if you could change three things about your circumstances right now, what would you change? If you could change three things about your circumstances right now, what would you change? Go ahead. Maybe you'd end the awkward silence. Tyler, if we'd have planned better, we could have had the Jeopardy thing ready to go. Dude. All right. Three things that you would change about your circumstances right now. I did a little research on this. And uh, when people look at their circumstances, most often the answers are, are something like this. They would, they would have more money. Uh, they would have more time off. They'd have more time with their spouse. Less arguing from their kids better communication with their spouse, different president, (laughs) different local government, a more eloquent pastor who didn't read like a dyslexic. Whoa, whoa, whoa. I'm right here. My feelings. Jeez. Better weather. I think we all feel sort of the less fires right now. Less drums from the worship pastor. He's right there. His feelings. (laughs) People would like to have a better job, a better boss. No more masks, no more COVID. Here's one. For things to be the way they were 30 years ago. Gas prices to go back down. And this one is just me. I just wrote this. The price of steak to go back down. (laughs) And I mean, preach, brother, preach. Come on. Maybe you wrote something totally different, but here, here's what I wonder is, did anyone, did anyone say, it's not my circumstances that I want to change, but it's, I want to have a better grasp of God's promises so that I can have an eternal perspective. It's not my circumstances I want to change, but I do want to have a better grasp of God's promises 
so that I can have an eternal perspective. And that's what we're going to look at today, is how, how can you have a better grasp of God's promises so that you can develop seeing things through God's eyes, the lens that he has given us. And he hasn't given us everything, but he's given us a lens of what is to come. And one of the things that we talk about, you know, we think about circumstances, and there's a phrase that shows up in the Bible several times. It's, it's moving mountains. Um, and I remember when I was a kid, I first heard that phrase. Jesus said, if you, if you have the seed of a mustard, I'm going to read it, mustard, you have the seed. If you have the faith of a mustard seed, there's the dyslexia. Um, if life gives you melons, you might be dyslexic. Um, but uh, what was I saying? Uh, <laughs> this moving mountains, right? It shows up again and again. When I was a kid, Somebody talked about, you, you see that phrase where Jesus says, if you have the faith of a mustard seed, you can move mountains. And I thought, like, literally moving mountains. I, like, pictured that in my head, like, Job's peak going over there. That's weird. Um, and that's probably not what he's talking about. Um, and then you grow up a little bit, and you think, well, maybe it's a little more abstract. Maybe when he says move mountains, he's talking about making your circumstances better, you know? God's going to move the mountains in your life. He's going he's to bring favorable circumstances to you. And you read, and you live a little, and you're like, well, that's probably not it. Um, and when you see that phrase, move mountains, uh, it, it, it most often has to do with God bringing about his kingdom on earth. And so Isaiah chapter 40, uh, the book of Isaiah transitions from uh, God using Isaiah to tell the, the people of Jerusalem how God was going to judge them and why. And then in chapter 40, it transitions to their future restoration, which is where we're at in the book of Ezekiel as well. But in Isaiah 40, verse 1, it says, Comfort, O comfort my people, says your God. Speak kindly to Jerusalem and call out to her that her warfare has ended, that her iniquity has been removed, that she has received the Lord's hands, Lord's hand double for all her sins. And so he's saying uh, that God has given them back for their wrong, their wrong living, Verse 3, a voice is calling, a clear way from the Lord in the wilderness, make smooth in the desert a highway for our God. And that was what John the Baptist talked about in his uh, ministry, that he was preparing the way for the, the kingdom of God. And then in verse 4, it says, let every valley be lifted up and every mountain and hill made low. And let the ground become a rough, let the rough, rough, the rough ground become a plain and the rugged terrain a broad valley. Then the glory of the Lord will be revealed, and all flesh will see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. And then in Matthew chapter 17, uh, the, the disciples are trying to cast out a demon from a person, and they're unable to do it, and they, they, ask, they ask Jesus in, in Matthew 17, verse 19, then the disciples approached Jesus privately and said, why couldn't we drive it out? And Jesus answered, because of your little faith. For truly I tell you that, the, that faith the size of a mustard seed, you will tell this mountain Move from here to there, and it will move. Nothing will be impossible for you. And so what he's telling them in this moving mountains is that if you have faith and trust that Jesus is the Messiah, the kingdom of God is going to be evident in you and through you. That's what he's revealing to them. And, and that, has, that has come to pass. In a spiritual sense, the kingdom of God is among us. That when Jesus Christ died on the cross and was, was paid, he, he paid the penalty for our sin, he was buried in the grave, and then he rose from dead, he, he raised us from death, and he gives us new life. And the, in a spiritual sense, his kingdom is present and moving in us. But there is a literal sense in which the kingdom of God has not yet arrived. Um, and so you look at Revelation chapter 6, and it says... In verse 12, then I saw him, 
Jesus, opened the sixth seal, and a violent earthquake occurred, and the sun turned black like sackcloth made of hair, and the entire moon became like blood. The stars of heaven fell to the earth as a fig tree drops its unripe figs when shaken by a high wind. The sky was split apart like a scroll being rolled up, and every mountain and island was moved from its place. Then the kings of the earth, the nobles, the generals, the rich, the powerful, and every slave and free person hid in the caves among the rocks of the mountains. And they said to the mountains and to the rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of the one seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb, because the great day of wrath has come. Who is able to stand? And so we understand that in a spiritual sense, God's kingdom is among us, the church. We, we live in the church age, and God is using the church to reveal his glory and move his kingdom in a spiritual sense. He's using it to call people out of darkness and into life. He's, he's transforming us and making us new people. And as, as he does that, he then uses us and our behavior and our life uh, to reflect his holiness. And that's what the kingdom of God is doing through the church in a spiritual sense. But we await Christ's return when in a literal sense, he rules on earth. And that's what the Jewish people look forward to. God's promise to Israel was her, natural, her nat national restoration, the eternal rule of a king from the line of David, the destruction of evil within her, the destruction of evil without her. All of those things God promised. Ezekiel is describing events that lead to the restoration of the kingdom of Israel. These promises are not transferred to the church, and the church in Israel are not one and the same. These promises are yet to be fulfilled. These promises will be fulfilled after the rapture of the church and a seven-year tribulation, great tribulation, as described in Revelation chapters 4 through 19. If you, if you read the book of Revelation, you have an introduction, letters to the, local, the, to the seven churches, and then chapter 4 all the way through chapter 19, verse 21, is about the seven-year tribulation and, and how God is going to reveal his glory, draw Israel back to him, and then set up the millennial kingdom where he will rule and reign. And where this battle is that we're reading about in Ezekiel 38 and 39 is in the middle of that seven-year tribulation. And so what God is going to do in this battle is he's going to reveal his glory, he's going to destroy evil, and he's going to cleanse the land of Israel so that it is ready for him to return. That's what this battle is about. And so let's jump into it, Ezekiel chapter 39, verse 1. And... Uh, let me read. It says, As for you, son of man, prophesy against Gog and say, This is what the Lord God says. Look, I am against you, Gog, chief prince of Meshech and Tubal. Now, if you, if you missed last week and these names seem strange to you, I encourage you to go back and, and, and watch that message. But Meshech and Tubal are uh, a, a group of nations, and Gog is a chief prince, uh, and he has gathered together both Meshech, Tubal, and then other nations. God lists seven nations in, in Revelation chapter 38 that are going to come against Israel, that he's going to draw out to fight against them, and that he's going to judge them. Okay, so that's who, who, he, who these people are. Verse 2, it says, I will turn you around, drive you on, and lead you up from the remotest parts of the north. I will bring you against the mountains of Israel. Then I will knock the bow from your left hand and make the arrows drop from your right hand. You, all your troops, and the peoples who are with you will fall on the mountains of Israel. I will give you as food to every kind of predatory bird and to wild animals. You will fall on the open field, for I have spoken. This is the declaration of the Lord. 
Verse 6, I will send fire against Magog and those who live securely on the coasts and islands. Then they will know that I am the Lord. So I will make my holy name known among the people of Israel and will no longer allow it to be profaned. And that word profane means to be polluted, defiled. It has the idea of Israel has drug God's name through the mud and he has cleansed them and now he is cleansing the land as well. Then the nations will know that I am the Lord, the Holy One of Israel. Yes, it is coming. It will happen. This is the declaration of the Lord God. This is the day I have spoken about. And so you have this army from, of, of Gog and Magog and the surrounding nations that he brings, and the entire invading army is entirely destroyed. Okay, so it's, it's all destroyed. And we read in, verse, in chapter 38 that God uses an earthquake to do this. He uses confusion among the nations and causes them to fight each other. He uses disease and he uses uh, a, a lack of food to kill these people. But what, what comes about is that it's clearly God that fights this battle. And the next thing we see here in verse 9 is that those who came to plunder will be plundered. Uh, God uses the greed of these nations to draw, to draw them out against Israel. Israel is living securely in the land. God is blessing them. Um, they're living in a time of peace. And these nations look and they say, here's an opportunity for wealth. Let's go grab it. Then the inhabitants of Israel's cities, verse 9, will go out, kindle fires, and burn the weapons. The small and large shields, the bows and arrows, the clubs and spears. For seven years... They will use them to make fires. And anytime you have that word seven show up, the, the Jewish mind immediately thinks of a sense of completeness. Okay, So you have the complete destruction of the army, and then you have a complete destruction of the army's weapons. Verse 10, They will not gather wood from the countryside or cut it down from forest, for they will use the weapons to make fires. They will take the loot from those who looted them and plunder those who plundered them. This is the declaration of the Lord. Now on that day, I will give Gog a burial place in the land of Israel, the traveler's valley east of the sea. It will block those who travel through, for Gog and all his hordes will be buried there. So it will be called the hordes of Gog's valley. And so what, what Ezekiel is revealing is Gog and Magog, they, they are destroyed in a, in a complete sense. Their weapons are destroyed in a complete sense. And then in 20 through 22, the land is going to receive a complete cleansing. And all of this is done to reveal God's glory and to prepare the people and the land for God's presence. Verse 12, the house of Israel will spend seven months burying them in order to cleanse the land. So there's a complete cleansing of the land taking place here. All the people of the land will bury them, and their fame will spread on the day that I display my glory. This is the declaration of the Lord. I will appoint men on a full-time basis to pass through the land and bury the invaders who remain on the surface of the ground in order to cleanse it. They will make their search at the end of seven months. When they pass through the land and one of them sees a human bone, he will set up a marker next to it until the barriers have buried it in the hordes of Gog Valley. There will be a city there named Hamanoah, so they will cleanse the land. Son of man, this is what the Lord God says. Tell every bird of every kind and the wild animals, assemble and come. Gather from all around to my sacrificial feast. I am slaughtering for you. A great feast on the mountains of Israel. You will eat flesh and drink blood. You will eat the flesh of mighty men and drink the blood of the earth's princes. Rams, lambs, male goats, and fattened bulls of Bashan. Bashan is a place that's uh, east of the Sea of Galilee, so this is indicating a possible location of the battle. You will eat fat until you are satisfied and drink blood until you are drunk. 
At the sacrificial feast I have prepared for you, at the table you will eat your fill of horses and riders, of mighty men and all the warriors. This is the declaration of the Lord. And so you look at this and you go, the loss of life from this battle will be so great that it's going to take months to clean up. It'll require a systematic approach and scavengers will feast. Uh, the, the cleaning that goes on, you're like, well, they, they have some people that are there to mark the bones. They have some people there that are bury the bones. And if you know any of the Old Testament, when people came in contact with death, they were considered unclean and they had to go through a ritual cleaning in order uh, to then enter into the presence of God again. And so there's going to be some people that are set apart uh, to deal with death and then go through the ritual cleansing again and again. And so that's what's being set up here. Um, you look at this and you go, God is predicting a future date when the nations of the earth will come against the land of Israel. He will call them out, he will judge them, and he will slaughter them. Um, and and you, you, you hear that and you go, man, most of the time when I think about Jesus, I go, humble, loving, merciful, gracious, kind, compassionate. And those are all true of him. Those are definitely things that are true of Jesus. And, and, the, and, the, and the glory of Jesus' first coming is that in his compassion and kindness and mercy and love and grace, he has forgiven us, forgiven us of our evil, cleansed us, and put us in a position where we do not have to fight against him on the wrong side of this battle. He's, he's taken us from enemy and made us friend. But the, but the fact of the matter is that there are those who are the enemy of God. They, 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 they want and produce evil. Um, I went back and, and read or uh, watched the, the video on 912. George Bush sits down and he said many things, but one of the things that stuck out to me is he talked about the audacity of evil and then he said that we were shocked by it, we were horrified by it, and we had an unyielding, an unyielding anger that would fight against the evil that took place that day. And I think that that's a pretty good picture of how God views things, that he's, he's shocked and horrified by the audacity of evil. And when you think of the word evil, you know, it's important to define evil. Evil is to do anything that would profane the name of God or harm each other. When they, when they ask Jesus, what's the greatest commandment? He says, you're to love the Lord your God with all of who you are and love your neighbor as yourself. That's good. Evil is to do anything that would profane the name of God or harm our neighbor. And what, what we know is that, first of all, we are guilty as individuals of profaning the name of God, dragging his name through the mud, fighting against him, and we are guilty of doing things that harm each other. And that, again, is the glory of Christ's first coming, that he came to deal with the penalty of our evil. He came and he dealt with the penalty of our evil and uh, our evil was nailed on the cross to Jesus. He who knew no sin became sin on our behalf so that we may become his righteousness. So he takes us out of being evil. He makes us brand new, right? This is good news. You're no longer evil. The penalty of evil is dealt with within you and now the spirit of God dwells within you and the power of evil that still exists in your flesh, he has given you the ability to overcome it through his own presence. So the penalty of sin is dealt with and the power of sin is dealt with. We look forward to a day when this battle and the following battles that take place and Christ's second return, when the presence of evil is removed. That's what the millennial kingdom and the eternal state are about. About. The, the penalty of sin is dealt with in Christ. The power of sin is dealt with in the presence of the Holy Spirit. The 
presence of sin in our flesh and in our bodies. We are made new creations, but we await our new bodies where sin no longer dwells. That is the hope laid up before us, and that is what the eternal state is about. And so it's not about changing our circumstances, but it is about seeing this big picture. The language that is used in this passage, um, you can make no two ways about it. God is threatening evil. Um, when, when armies would line up at this point in time, there would be a, you know, a shield wall and a shield wall. And, and, and you don't just run at each other. The movies don't understand this. The individuals in that shield wall knew what was coming. It, it was going to be death. It was going to be terrible. And so they would hurl insults at each other. They would yell insults at each other. And the insults that they would yell would be something like, I'm going to feed you to the, bir- to the birds of the sky. The birds of the sky, the ravens are going to come and they're going to eat your flesh. The wild animals are going to come and they're going to eat your flesh. And so what God is doing is he's threatening evil. He's saying, I am coming for you. And that should be good news to us. Because I don't know about you, but I don't want me to constantly have my eyes off of Christ but on my circumstances. It happens to all of us. He calls us to keep our eyes on him and not our circumstances. But the promise of the eternal state are circumstances where sin and death are no longer there. There are no more tears. There is no more death. Evil is eradicated. And this battle is leading to that. And so we want to honor God as gracious and merciful and kind and compassionate and self-sacrificial, that agape love that he gives to us, giving of himself to save us. We want to honor him for that, but never lose sight of the fact that he will judge and eradicate evil. Psalm 46 says this, our God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth should change, and though the mountains slip into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains quake at its swelling pride. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy dwelling places of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She will not be moved. God will help her when morning draws. The nations make an uproar, the kingdoms tottered. He raised his voice, the earth melted. The Lord of hosts, the Lord of armies, the Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our stronghold. Come behold the works of the Lord, who has wrought desolations in the earth. He makes wars cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and cuts the spear in two. He burns the chariot with fire. Cease striving. And know that I am God. This is to rest in him. Be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our stronghold. Um, That's Psalm 46. We're going to take that in through song right now. You have been listening to Pastor Kirk Zorki of Hilltop Community Church in Carson City. We would like to take a moment to thank you for joining us and would like to encourage you to reflect on how God has promised to eliminate evil and how he has empowered you with the promise of his strength to overcome sin in your own life. 
May we draw nearer to God as we consider how He has provided Himself for us in order to experience true life. Let's continue to listen to Pastor Kurt as he wraps up his message from Ezekiel chapter 39. So as we worship, as I said earlier, it should lead us to enjoy God and glorify Him. And that's why we sing, uh, to enjoy God and glorify Him. Uh, that's also why God fights this battle. Uh, his, his glory is to, to be displayed and His goal is to draw people near to Him. And so what we're going to see is we're going to see the effects of this battle on the nations and on Israel. If you pick up in verse 21. It says, I will display my glory among the nations, and all the nations will see the judgment I have executed and the hand I have laid on them. From that day forward, the house of Israel will know that I am the Lord their God. And the nations will know that the house of Israel went into exile on the account of their iniquity because they dealt unfaithfully with me. Therefore, I hid my face from them and handed them over to, to their enemies so that they fell by the sword. I dealt with them according to their uncleanness and transgressions. I hid my face from them. And that's what Ezekiel has been revealing in in the the major chunk of Ezekiel that we've gone through uh, was looking at the judgment of the nation of of Israel, the the people of Judah and of Jerusalem, and why. And the, the recurring theme again and again was because of their idolatry. They were worshiping false gods instead of him. Rather than enjoying him and glorifying him, they were enjoying the creation above him and dishonoring his name. And so they were judged for that. And there's a near sense in which this is fulfilled. They were taken into captivity, and Daniel reveals that they'd be there for 70 years. And so they go through a 70-year captivity in Babylon, and then Babylon falls to the Persians, and Cyrus the Great brings forward a decree that the Jews can return to their land, and they go back, and you read Nehemiah and Ezra and how they set up the nation again and rebuilt the walls. But... But if you know your history, the Jewish people did not all return. Many of them stayed in Babylon. Many of them were exiled to other places. Uh, And we know this from history. We know this from the land uh, that we live in today, that the Jewish people have not been regathered to the land. They are in their land again, but not all the people have been regathered. And so this is something that is, is future, something that is yet to happen in its completeness. And then in verse 25, he he reveals that he's going to bring the nation back, have compassion on them, pour his spirit on them, and his goal in this battle will be Israel's national repentance and spiritual restoration. And God will do this in the millennial kingdom. Verse 25, this is what the Lord God says, Now I will restore the fortunes of Jacob and have compassion on the whole house of Israel, and I will be jealous for my holy name. They will feel remorse for their disgrace and all the unfaithfulness they have committed against me when they live securely in the land with no one to frighten them. So God's going to restore them, and they're going to go, what were we thinking being apart from him all this time? Verse 27, When I bring them back from the peoples and gather them from the countries of their enemies, I will demonstrate my holiness through them in the sight of many nations. They will know that I am the Lord their God when I regather them to their own land after having exiled them among the nations. I will leave none of them behind. I will no longer hide my face from them for I will pour out my spirit on the house of Israel. This is the declaration of the Lord. 
And so what God promises is there will be a time when he will regather all of the people. He will bless them. He will enrich them. He will rule over them. He will pour his spirit on, out on them. And they will be, they will be instruments who glorify him. Uh, God is doing this now through the church. You and I, the believers of Jesus Christ, uh, who, who understand his first coming and his death and burial and resurrection, we are the instruments that God is doing this through now. Uh, we enjoy the elements of the new covenant where God has poured out his spirit on us and he uses us to bring glory to his name. And he does that through our, our behavior. He does that through our, our righteousness. He does that through our repentance. He does that as he makes us more and more like his son, Jesus. But there will be a day coming in the future where God will do this with the nation of Israel. He regathers the people, he pours out his spirit on them, and through the nation of Israel, um, God reveals his glory. And so the question then becomes, when does this happen and what is the big picture? And so if you, if you flip on your handout or you can look up on the screen, um, we understand that at Jesus' first coming, the church age began. And we now live in that church age. Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection has brought about the church age. Uh, and, and what the church awaits, uh, it look forward to, looks forward to, is, is the word rapture, which is from the, it's actually from the Latin, the Greek word that's used in 1 Thessalonians is harpazo. And so in that, God comes and he regathers his church and he calls us to him. And then after he raptures the church, there's a seven-year tribulation, the, the seven, 70 weeks of Daniel, and then also... Uh, it's pretty clear in the book of Revelation that this is a seven-year tribulation that takes place. Ezekiel 38 and 39 that we're reading about, uh, I believe happened in the middle of that tribulation. I shared this with you last week. There are people who look at this differently, and they see that Ezekiel 38 and 39 happens at the end of the millennial reign. Uh, there's a whole other uh, viewpoint on theology that says all of this is allegorical, and then it's taking on, it's been happening around us for a long time. Um, I'm, I'm giving you my understanding of this based upon a, a, a straightforward understanding of the scripture. And so you have Jesus' first coming, the, the church age, the rapture of the church, this seven-year tribulation. The first half of that tribulation, it's revealed uh, in Revelation that, that Israel does live securely in the land, that the, the Antichrist actually brings peace on the earth, a false sense of peace. Israel lives securely in the land, and then this battle takes place where God draws out the nations against Israel and and fights them, and then you have the end of the tribulation rolling into the millennial kingdom. At the end of the tribulation, Satan is bound, and Christ returns for his second coming. And then you have a thousand-year reign. This is, this is all Revelation chapter 19 and 20. You have a thousand-year reign where Christ rules over the nation of Israel. But the church, uh, the interesting thing is that we as the church are raptured, uh, and, and those who have died are called up to him. Uh, and we return with Christ at his second coming to rule and reign with him during the millennial kingdom. And so you have Christ ruling over uh, the nation of Israel, but you also have him ruling, ruling with the church. The church rules with him. At the end of that thousand years, Satan and evil are destroyed once and for all. That's Revelation chapter 20. And then you enter into the eternal state where there's no death, no tears, um, and Christ rules over a new heavens and a new earth. That new heavens and new earth, that's another place where theologians will differ on how they view that. Some of them say that the language in 2 Peter is literal and God will melt the elements, that the earth will melt. This one that we live on will be completely destroyed and a new one and a new heavens is created. Other people look at that language and they see that the Hebrew uh, um, 
symbolism within it and, and say that uh, based upon the Hebrew symbolism that Peter is using there, that the earth is cleansed with fire and the one that we live on is the same one that enters the eternal state, but it's new and cleansed, a new heavens and a new earth. What, what, what view you hold on that is really inconsequential to the point that God brings about an eternal state where there's a new heavens and a new earth where the penalty of sin is gone, the power of sin is gone, and the presence of sin is eradicated. And so there's no death, no tears, no sign, no, no, no evil. It's, it's, it's as it should be, as God intended. And so that is the big picture. And you might look at this and go, okay, why does this matter? And Re- Revelation 1.3 says, blessed, and that word means fortunate and happy, is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. And blessed are those who hear the words of this prophecy and keep, which means to observe and guard what is written in it because the time is near. And so what prophecy should do for us is it should bring blessing and joy to the Christian, a sense of us being fortunate and happy. Based upon God's faithfulness, the believer can be certain that the words of Scripture will come to pass. We know the end of the story, and we are to remember the end of the story because it gives us hope. Okay? And, and I think that hope is a word that's pretty important right now. Um, it, you know, there's, there's, there's hope and there's wish. And hope is a confident assurance. Based upon my experience with God, I once was a sinner, and I, I trusted in his death, Jesus' death on the cross, for the payment of my sins. The penalty is done away with. I'm no longer guilty before him. I confess my sins when they come up, but I'm not guilty. I'm cleansed, and, and the Spirit of God dwells within me, and I know the power of the Spirit of God within me. I know his ability to overcome the temptation of sin. I know the, his ability to move me to be like Jesus and be compassionate and loving and gracious and angry at the things that anger him as well. He causes me to be like Christ. And I know that experience. If you're a Christian and you don't know that experience, then boy, are you missing out. Uh, but, but we're called to understand that. And based upon what God has done in the past for me, I have a confident assurance that he will bring about the future that he has promised. And so uh, th- that's, that's a hope. It's a confident assurance. Wish is an unrealistic expectation. Um, we were at Disney, like I said, and, and I just imagine, you know, Jimmy the Cricket, uh, when you wish upon a star, makes no difference who you are. When you wish upon a star, your, your dream will come true. Well, that's, that's an unrealistic expectation. I encourage you, go out to stars tonight, give it a shot. Um, <laughs> it's not going to happen, right? And so that's an unrealistic expectation. I was singing that song in the kitchen yesterday, by the way, and uh, at the high-pitched voice that Jiminy uses, and my, uh, my kid said, you should not do that in church. So I didn't. Um, but that's the difference between between a hope and a wish. And and so what the Christian has is a confident assurance that God's promises will come about, that he will return, he will deal with evil and sin once and for all, that he will set up his own kingdom where he will rule physically on this earth and bring about righteousness through his presence. He brings about righteousness now through his presence in the individual lives of believers, but he's going to return and do that, and then it'll be a point where he will not just bind Satan, but he will destroy, cast Satan into the lake of fire, and evil is eradicated from the eternal state. There is no place for it, and it will not exist. And so that's the confident expectation, that's the confident assurance that each of us has as believers, that God will bring about his promises. And that's why studying prophecy is valuable, because it points our minds towards the truth that Christ has coming for us. So let me pray. Father, we look forward to the return of your Son. We long to know a day when evil is destroyed and justice delivered. We thank you that that just punishment that we deserve was paid by Jesus on the cross. 
We take security in your hands that though capable of crushing us, we're instead nailed to a cross for the remission of our sins. God, you are almighty. You are worthy. You are righteous. You are holy. You are sovereign, gracious, and merciful. You have saved us from the penalty of sin. You give us victory over the power of sin. And you promise a future without the presence of sin and evil. We are blessed to enjoy you, to worship you, and to be reminded of your goodness. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for joining us and listening along as we studied the truth of God's Word today. We hope to see you at church in person on Sunday morning at our 8.30 or 10 o'clock service. You can also join us live online at hilltopchurch.net forward slash live for our 10 a.m. service. May you draw nearer to Jesus every day and find joy beyond compare in the overwhelming provision of God's love.